Well, it has been about 13 years since we had a newborn where Andrea and I would wake up in the middle of the night needing to feed a baby or change diapers. But I will tell you, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I remember the tug of war of who was going to be the parent to get up this time. I, I remember the pretending to be asleep thing that some of us dads do so that we don't have to be the one to, to, to hear the crying. But I think what I will remember the most is the sleep deprivation. Uh, did you know that on average, each new parent loses 109 minutes of sleep every night for the first year of having a baby? That is a lot of sleep. And of course, with it comes some interesting decisions. Uh, Sleep-deprived people make bad decisions. The National Sleep Foundation explains, consistent sleep deprivation can negatively impact everything from your mood to your brain function to your overall judgment. In fact, being awake for more than 19 hours straight can affect your brain the same way as if you were legally drunk. Let me say that a little bit different. Just like having too much to drink affects your ability to make good decisions, right? We all know that. Not sleeping enough can do the same thing. Uh, recently, somebody asked a bunch of dads, new dads, to share stories about things they did when they were sleep deprived for that first year. I thought I would just share with you a few. Is that all right? Um, one 34-year-old dad from Minnesota explained that about three times a week when he's up with the baby, he finds himself needing a midnight snack, usually cereal. He writes, so I stumbled downstairs and poured myself a bowl of tricks. I thought they tasted weird, but I was such a zombie eating them I didn't care. When my wife woke up the next morning and asked what happened to the breast milk she left in the refrigerator, <laughs> I put two and two together. Another dad from Maryland shared that he goes to the gym every morning and, and usually just throws on whatever he's got lying around. One morning, uh, after very little sleep the night before, he grabbed a pair of sweatpants that were lying around and he put them on thinking, these feel a little bit tight, but whatever, that's why I'm going to the gym. Wasn't until he got there that he realized they were his wife's and they had Juicy plastered on the back. Uh, one more, this is from Jason, 29 in Oregon. He shared that one day a, a package showed up at his house addressed to him, and he opened it up, and it was a mint condition classic Nintendo left, uh, still in the box and everything. What a great gift somebody gave him, he thought. Then he unpacked the box a little bit more, and he found a receipt from an eBay seller with his name on it, saying that he paid $800 for it. He immediately went online to like check for fraud and stuff, but there wasn't any. What he found in his eBay purchase history was a week prior, a buy it now purchase of an $800 classic Nintendo at 2.45 a.m. It was a particular week where they were up all night with the baby, and he wrote this. He said, I'm no detective, but if my timeline is correct, I must have bought it during one of those nights. When you're sleep-deprived, there's not a lot of critical thinking going on, and eBay makes it so easy, he says. Well, it's easy to make fun of ourselves and the choices we make when we haven't had enough to sleep or we've had too much to drink, but here's our question today. What's our excuse the rest of the time? If humans have a switch in their brain that somehow flips off due to lack of sleep or too much to drink, how come that switch is also in the off position when we're sober and wide awake? And the answer to that question lies in a truth about us that we sometimes don't admit. That even as wide awake, sober humans, we have a tendency to ignore something in us that would tell us to choose differently, to choose better. That even when we have all of our faculties, there are some faculties we choose not to use. 
And we find ourselves later with regret saying, what was I thinking? I wasn't thinking. And today, I want to teach you about one of those things in you that you might tend to ignore. And we're going to find it in another one of those questions, our third question. In, in case you missed the last two weeks, the series we're, we're currently in, we're giving you five questions you can ask for fewer regrets to save yourself from making choices you will regret. I said last week, this past winter, I read an incredible book by Andy Stanley where he walks us through these five questions, the reader, and, and they are so good, and it's inspired us to show you these same questions as we find them in the Bible, people asking them in the Bible, questions we don't often ask, but we should, and this week, I want to show you the third question we see in the Bible, the one, uh, one that will help you make better decisions, and it has to do with not ignoring this thing in you that we all tend to ignore. I'm going to show you question three in an episode from the life of King David in the Bible. But before I do, can I just say to you, all five of these questions, of all of them, I think this is the one that some of you will be able to apply right away. I'll just tell you this morning, even as we sit here, by the time I'm done, some of you are going to say to yourself, oh, I need to be asking this question right now. Some of you will be asking this question before I even say my final word. And you are going to ask yourself this question. It's going to cause you to leave here and go do something. Make a better choice than one you've been making when you're about to. And I'll just ask you to be open to that today. Because God might be speaking to you loudly this morning. Or he might be speaking to you in a whisper as we talk. The part of the David story I want to show you is in 1 Samuel 24. Now, the story of David is a long story. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I, I'm just going to show you one episode from it, but, but let me give you a little bit of backstory so you understand why what happens in what I'm about to show you is so important. David had been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel, the second king. The problem is the first king, Israel, still was in office, King Saul. Saul was a terrible king, and God had decided to replace him, but not with his son, which is what the surrounding nations would do when a king died. God decided he wanted somebody after his own heart, so he chose David, but not to become king right away, to become king at some undisclosed time in the future. No one knew when that would be. David was a soldier in Saul's army, and before long, his popularity overshadowed Saul. Well, that didn't go so well with the king. And so in his jealousy, Saul tried to kill David. David ran away, became a fugitive, but he didn't run away alone. Other outlaws and, and fugitives, they decided to join David. And soon, he had a small army of his own, an army of people like David who were on the run from the law. And what's important to know is this army has no home. Now, that, that is the Cliff's Notes version, all right? Saul is a bad king. David's going to be the next king. That's who God decides on. Saul is threatened. He tries to kill David. David and his men go to the desert to hide. And that is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. It says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David, the guy you're looking for, he is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Okay, let me just stop right there. Crags of the wild goats, desert of En Gedi, it is exactly how you picture that. Uh, a few years ago, a filmmaker decided to set up camp in En Gedi near these crags 
to see if what the Bible described 3,000 years ago still holds true today, take a look at what he filmed. Um, you can see why this, is, this area is called the crags of the wild goats. And you can see why David and his men might think that this is a pretty good place to hide out. It's rugged, and if you get up high enough, you can look down and you can see if Saul and his armies are approaching you. And while it's incredibly barren, right, there are springs there where you can get some water, which, by the way, is why the goats are there. And if you run out of food while you're hiding, you're not really out of food because, again, you got goats. Okay, this is where Saul hears that David is hiding out. And so it says in verse 3, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. So... In the desert of En Gedi, near the crags of the wild goats, what you ought to know is there are caves everywhere. You've got these crags in the desert mountains that go on for miles and miles, and all along the sides of the mountains are caves, hundreds and hundreds of caves. And in the middle of his search for David, nature calls. King Saul has to go to the bathroom. Now, I want you to picture this. Actually, do not picture this. Don't picture this. But... Uh, with 3,000 men who are all marching in a caravan, somebody always has to go to the bathroom, right? And if you are a normal soldier in the caravan, you either have to hold it or you pull over to the side of the road and you just go in front of everybody while they're marching. And then you catch up to your spot in the caravan when you're done. But when you're the king, you are not going to go in public. So Saul stops the whole caravan and he climbs up into the hills to find a suitable place to do his business. And what better place than a dark, cool cave? But this is where the story takes a twist. Take a look at the rest of verse 3. Saul finds a cave to relieve himself, but it turns out David and his men were far back in that same cave. What are the odds? Of all the caves and all the mountains of the desert, Saul chooses to walk into David's. He chooses to go to the bathroom where David and a handful of his men are hiding. Well, that is exactly what happens. Now, I should say, David and his men, their eyes have adjusted to the dark. They see Saul at the front of the cave as he comes in, but, but Saul cannot see them. He's not even thinking to look back into the deep, dark parts of the cave. Right, and I ask, what would be running through David's mind? What would run through your mind? Here's Saul. He's all alone. There's no one to protect him. You and a handful of your guys are there able to overtake him? The knowledge that he is out searching, trying to kill you right now. You would think this is a sign from God. God has delivered Saul into my hands. Everyone knows that David is the next king. The only thing standing in his way is the current king. If I were David, I'd be thinking, God must have, have had Saul choose this cave at this moment so I can save my own life and fulfill my destiny. And this is actually what David's men say to him. Verse 4, the men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. His men start telling him, this is our chance. This is your moment. This is when it happens. Everything in your life has been leading up to right now. The waiting's over. One of them starts singing Kelly Clarkson's American Idol winning ballad. Some people wait a lifetime for a moment like this. Do you remember that song? Anybody? They say, David, this is it. Kill the king. Let's go home. Kill the king before the king kills you. Okay, I, I want to just ask you to imagine for a second. 
if David does this, how's it going to go? 3,000 soldiers of Saul's watched him disappear into a cave. 3,000 men would see David step out instead with Saul's severed head hoisted like by its hair. And they would all proclaim, David is the new king. And guess what? There would be no civil war, right? I mean, thousands of lives would be spared. Killing Saul shouldn't even be a decision for David. This is a no-brainer. All right, let me ask you to imagine something else. Imagine the pressure that David felt to do this. You got men who want to go home. They are ready to be done hiding out in a cave, living life on the run in the desert. Imagine the adrenaline he would be feeling. Imagine the emotion. But here's the thing. What you're about to see is David felt something else as well. The rest of verse 4, it says, David crept up unnoticed, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. We're not sure what this is all about, the corner of Saul's robe. Is this a pre-fight prank? Did somebody dare him to get as close as he could and do this? We don't know, but it causes David to feel this other feeling that I was telling you about. This other feeling, take a look at verse 5. It says, after he did this, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And it says, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men who were telling him to kill Saul, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Okay, look again at those early words in verse 5. It says, David was conscience-stricken. Will you say that with me? Conscience-stricken. He felt a tension, a hesitation. He felt like something was not quite right. He felt like he should pause. Now, this feeling made no sense in light of the circumstances, right? We've talked about why this is a no-brainer. But David, a few feet away or seconds away from a decision that everybody would applaud, feels a tension and listens to it. You know what his tension was? I'm about to murder the king. As much as God chose me to be next, he chose this guy to be first. Who am I to replace the man that God had put in place? In spite of all the expectations, in spite of all the pressure to act, David made a different decision because he was conscience stricken. Now, Martin Luther King said, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? David has a tension in him that tells him, hold on, something about this does not feel right. And David pays attention to the tension. David asked the third question we're looking at this series. Before he makes the decision, and here's what the question is, question number three, the conscience question, is there a tension that deserves my attention? All right, I want to make sure it sinks in. Would you turn to someone next to you and ask the question, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Say it to each other. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? I'm about to make a decision. I need to know which thing is the right thing. Question, is there a tension that I need to pay attention to? And it causes David to change course. It causes him to choose differently. And if you 
ask this question before you make a decision or while you're making the decision even, if you stop and notice a tension, if you explore that tension instead of ignore that tension, you may find God leading you to better decisions. Um, I don't know how many of you like to make pros and cons lists. Can we, can we just be honest? I'm a pros and cons list guy. Anybody else pros and cons list people? Yeah, a bunch of you do that. I will write them all. I remember when I was a kid. This is not in my notes. I remember when I was a kid, I was in junior high, and I was trying to figure out if I should ask a girl out on a date. And I sat with like five of my friends at a whiteboard in our church, and I wrote out pros and cons of what could go wrong and what could go right, all right? Well, I will do this. I'll write them out. I'll talk about them with people. Here are the reasons I should do this right now. Here are the reasons I shouldn't do this. You know what my pros and cons list never really show? This other factor that exists outside of lists. That as much as the pros may tell me to do something, I better hold off because something in me that's not on the list can't be on the list. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. It's a tension. It tells me it's not right. And, and just to be clear, I'm not talking about your gut. I'm not saying today, go make decisions with your gut. Maybe you'll do that. But that's totally different. I'm talking about a God-infused tension, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Um, hold on, slow down, hesitate. As much as the pros outweigh the cons, there may be something here that you need to reconsider. Um, I'll tell you, I have been here 13 years now. Many, many years ago here at Crosswinds, we were looking to hire a pastor for a certain department. Uh, I'm not gonna get too specific with the story, but I'm gonna tell you where I blew it on this. And the person that we were interviewing, uh, they, they looked great on paper. Actually, they looked great in person too when we interviewed. We, we had them come in and talk to us about vision for their department, and we had them talk to us about their philosophy of ministry, and it was all good until a second trip out, we invited their spouse. And uh, when we hire here at Crosswinds, we don't hire your spouse because we hire you. Uh, what I mean is there are some churches when you hire a pastor, their husband or their wife, they got a lot of duties that go with that. Th th those people are considered unpaid staff. Not cool. That's not us. Uh, when we hire someone, their spouse can be as involved or uninvolved as they want to be. Well, we met this person's spouse, and, and there were some serious like chemistry issues. Uh, they seemed especially judgy and uh, very antagonistic, just like in the first five minutes. And, and they postured as if they were too good for us. And we even got the impression that this spouse felt like churches like crosswinds, like our style of ministry in trying to make church accessible to people who feel uncomfortable going to church. Um, we sensed this person was skeptical that we were real Christians, which is so crazy to say to you right now as I say this. But, but you know, we thought, hey, look, we're not hiring them. We're hiring their husband or their wife. And even though I had a tension in me, maybe this isn't right, I didn't pay attention to it as well as I could have. And I moved forward, and sure enough, during this person's tenure, their spouse got into conflict with so many of our staff and so many people in the church, and their spouse felt miserable having to worship with us on the weekend. It didn't work out. And, and I'll just tell you, while I have incredible gratitude for that employee and what they brought during their tenure, like, we are better for their involvement. Even this many, many years later, I didn't pay attention to the tension. And lots of people suffered for it. And if I had, who's to say that God wouldn't have brought somebody else along that would have been equally good? Now, 
You know why we ignore the tension? One of the main reasons we believe that we can predict outcomes. We think we are so good at predicting what's going to happen if we do the thing that we are deciding to do. And so, because I know what's going to happen if I decide what I decide, I don't need to pay attention to the tension in me because it's all going to work out. I just know. I can predict. Okay, think about your track record in predicting outcomes. Let me give you a few. Crosswinds bought property out here off the 580 in 1998, predicting that we would build and move into a new church within a few years. We moved into this church in 2015, 17 years later. Bad prediction. Goodness village. Uh, we anticipated somehow 28 homes would be done by December. Last December, it is August, and we are finally putting the finishing touches on the last few homes. Bad prediction. 16 years, ago, 16 years ago, I was a pastor in Las Vegas. My parents came out to visit us, and they said, hey, if we retire and we move here to Las Vegas from Chicago to be closer to you and our grandkids, do you think you'll be here a while? We say, yeah, this place is great. Why would we ever want to leave? My parents pick up and move. Three years later, I was saying, get me out of this godforsaken desert. I just want to see a tree once in a while. No, three years later, really, God gets involved and calls me to move here to California. Okay, we're not always great at predicting outcomes. About four or five years ago, we had a used Honda Odyssey minivan that we were going to drive into the ground. You know how you have an old car that you've paid off and you're like, I'm going to just drive this until it's dead. It was paid off. It had well over 100,000 miles on it. It probably close to 200,000 miles. Our plan, we will drive this until it dies. And when it dies, it will be in a convenient place around town where Andrea will be able to come pick me up in her car and take me home until it died just north of Wairica, California, as we had started out on a two-week road trip, five hours from here, middle of nowhere, four bicycles on the rack on the back, so I can't rent a car to get me anywhere because rentals don't have trailer hitches for bike racks. I think I'm pretty good at predicting outcomes in general. I'm not as good as I think. And if you're like me, let, let, let me give you grace, lots of grace. Guess what? Most of the time, outcomes are not your fault. It's just that outcomes can sometimes be unpredictable. And when we have decisions to make that create a tension in us, and we ignore it because we're certain it's going to end up well, we are likely to be disappointed. We're likely to find ourselves with another regret. We've got to pay attention to the tension. Would you say that with me? Pay attention to the tension. And here's why. Here's what I want you to know. That internal tension is often God's way of turning you another direction. God might be turning you toward an outcome that he does know, right? And he'll do it through your tension. Want to know what's even more important? As people who are committed to following God, our job, I'm going to surprise you with this, your job's not to predict outcomes. My job's not to predict, you know what my, my job is? It's to surrender to God. It is to obey, it is to follow him, it is to lie in bed at night and know that you listened to attention that could have very likely been God whispering to you to make a better choice. It is to know that the God you follow He's the one in charge of the outcomes. 
In fact, let me tell you the outcome here with David and Saul. Saul leaves the cave. We, 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 we have no idea how close he just came to being murdered. He rejoins his men, and as they get ready to pull away in their caravan, David comes out of the cave, and he begins to yell, Saul, Saul! And then he bows down to the king from the mouth of the cave, and then he holds up that corner of the robe that he cut off, and he says, I had a chance, and I spared you because you are the king that God selected. And then he says, look at verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And Saul, humiliated by David's humility, turns his army around and heads back to Jerusalem. And not too long after, Saul finds himself in a battle against the Philippines, and a random archer from the other army shoots an arrow into the sky, and it falls, and it pierces Saul's armor, mortally wounding him. And Saul, too proud to die at the hands of his enemies, falls on his own sword and dies. And the citizens very quickly make David their new king. He becomes king without having to murder a king. Now, had David known that someday the Philistines would someday shoot an arrow that would someday lead to Saul's death, that cave moment would have been an easy decision. But that's not how life works, right? It's why when it comes to decisions that have tension in them, we should not trust our ability to predict the outcomes. It's why we shouldn't take matters into our own hands. It's why we have to pay attention to the tension. And as I said at the beginning, it's one thing to be sleep-deprived and miss the tension. It's one thing to miss it because you're not sober and you can't pay attention to the tension. But to feel it and then ignore it, it is to make a decision that could very likely lead to regret. Now, one quick thing I need to be clear on. Attention, attentioning you does not mean go do the opposite of what the pros are pointing to. Attention does not mean I feel something, I better walk away every single time. If Andrea had walked away because of attention, she never would have dated me. Can we be honest? <laughs> True story for another time. But when you feel attention in you, it means you need to explore it, not ignore it. Why am I feeling this? What's going on? Is the Holy Spirit trying to tell me something? Am, am I supposed to take more time right now? Am I supposed to process this with some other people, with my small group? Question three is not, is there a tension telling me to walk away? It's, is there a tension that I need to pay attention to? All right, today, many of you are wrestling with a decision. Some big, some little, some of you somewhere in between. If there is something in you, something you cannot put your finger on, something that bothers you right now about an option you're considering, pause and pay attention. That may be God's way of protecting you. His way of getting you to back away from a decision that you will later regret. It could be his way of orchestrating an outcome that you would never have predicted, but God knows. Every time you make a decision, ask yourself, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Don't ignore it. Don't brush by it. Let it bother you until you know why it bothers you. And I think... If we follow David's example on this one, we will have fewer regrets. All right, will you stand with me? Let's pray together before we go today.
God, how fortunate are we, how lucky, how blessed are we that you are not a God that says, follow me, and then leaves us alone to make our decisions. That you put something called the Holy Spirit, a wonderful gift, yourself, inside each and every one of us who's chosen to follow you. You put the Holy Spirit to create moments of tension and speak to us. And God, I just ask today, I know there are people here in the middle of big decisions who are having to weigh this or that, pros and cons, and God, I ask that they would feel your tensions loudly. God, that you would speak to them loudly in these moments, and God, I ask that you would give us the courage to listen, to explore what the Holy Spirit might be telling us. God, we commit to doing these things and being a people who follow you into better decisions. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.